I'll turn you back to Numbers chapter 16. I'll actually be going into chapter 17 as well this morning, God willing. Entitled the message, Judgment on the Rebellious. Let's just unite our heart together in a word of prayer for needed help. Father in heaven, we thank that we can come with our praise and adoration for all that the Lord has done for us. We thank the Lord for the person of our Redeemer. Even in this passage, Lord, bring us to Calvary. Pray, Lord, that I would shut out every distracting thought. Take away, Lord, every distraction, maybe of this week. Let us in with thyself. Lord, we pray that thy voice will be heard speaking to our hearts. To that end, Lord, give help in the pulpit. And Lord, give help in the pew. O God, give us words that must and shall prevail. Give those prevailing words. Give the listening ear. Give the receptive heart. Do our souls good today. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. We can fully appreciate why Moses was angry or wroth. He had been falsely accused of all sorts, as we noticed last time. And also his orders had been defiantly refused. But rather than taking it out upon the rebels, he brought his grievances unto the Lord. And we can see that his anger was not an anger of the flesh, but it was an anger in the spirit. He was angry against the sin of the rebellious. Before we go on, we could maybe say, so was Christ. So was Christ in the synagogue. I bring you to Mark chapter 3 and verse 5. He knew what the Pharisees were thinking, the religious leaders of that day, as he was before the man with the withered hand. Verse 5 says, And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored whole as the other. He looked round about them with anger. The Lord knew the hardness of the heart. (coughs) And Moses here has the honor of God in view. And because God was being blasphemed, and because he was provoked by their speeches, he was angry. He respected godliness and he abhorred evil. And that can be noted because Moses calls here for judgment upon the offenders. And the manner in which that would be seen would be if their offerings were not accepted. And in praying such a prayer, he knew that it would be answered because he was praying in accordance to the will of God. The Lord would not bless those who were outside as well. And neither were they chosen of him to perform this holy duty. They stood really on the same ground as Cain. You remember how Cain sought to approach God by the works of his own hands, even though he understood the approach was through the blood sacrifice. And we read that of his offering, God did not accept it. In a pluralist society in which we're living in, where many ways are portrayed as being acceptable unto God, 
You can get to a God this way or that way or the other way. It's good men and women, young people, to remember what the Word teaches. There is but one offering, one sacrifice that God respects when it comes to the salvation of the soul, and that is the sacrifice that was offered upon Mount Calvary by the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the offering of Christ provides salvation for the sinner and has purchased eternal life to those who are in danger of perishing. I wonder where do you stand even this morning? Do you stand with Aaron? Or are you standing with the 250 with their censers? After Moses declares the innocence, his innocence of misconduct to the Israelites, in that he hadn't taken off them that which was the least in value, even an ass. His conduct had been exemplary ever since he had brought them out of the land of Egypt, right up until the present time. And now the day had come when God would show whom he had chosen and the rebellious upon whom the judgment would fall. And I want us to look at that even this morning. I want you to notice, first of all, mercy in judgment. Even though judgment was destined for the rebellious, that doesn't mean that mercy wasn't in show as well. And right up to the last minute, you might think here of the supplication of Moses, for that was his reaction when God said that he was going to judge the people. You look at the words of verse 22. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and wilt thou be wrought with all the congregation? That supplication merely asked God one question. Was he going to destroy all the congregation because of the sin of one man? And the answer, of course, was no. And that had been proved already right back in the time of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah as Abraham had prayed that the righteous might be spared and God answered that prayer. And so the same supplication from Moses was to be answered. He wasn't going to destroy the people, but the leaders of the people, the leaders of them in this rebellion. But is it not a gracious thing that we find Moses and Aaron, even considering the people, after all that they had suffered by way of attack from this crowd, and the leaders had influenced the people to take sides against Moses and against Aaron, yet now they're found on their faces before God, interceding for them. There's the best reaction. When someone harms you, bring it to the Lord. Is that not a glimpse of our greater high priest? A glimpse of our great intercessor. The one who is the greatest example of showing mercy toward his enemy. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For even though he was sinless and spotless, yet they took him and they crucified him to that Roman gibbet. But oh, men and women, hear what he says. That came out of the, from the darkness around Calvary. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's mercy. That's compassion. And even though we grieve the Spirit, and even though we feel oftentimes, yet you think, and you consider this morning, the Lord is faithful in praying for us and pleading the merits of a sacrifice for sin 
on our behalf. Please note that Moses and Aaron here didn't ask that God would turn a blind eye to their sin. He didn't ask that they might be lenient with the evildoers. They instead pleaded that he would be merciful to those who were being led by them and that he wouldn't consume the entire congregation. You'll see here also the separation. What mercy for the Lord to give instruction to Moses to what the people were to do. In answer to his praying, the whole congregation were not going to be destroyed, but to know the mercy of God, they had to separate from the tents of the wicked. Verse 26, he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. We might say mercy came with responsibility, as it does in the message of the gospel. Christ Jesus provides a way of escape from the judgment of a sin-hearing God, but the sinner must receive Christ. The sinner must receive him as Savior, or they will perish in their sin. And what a lesson we have about separation. You know, I feel sorry for preachers and I pity others who can't see separation in the Scriptures. God has given a warning already to Moses and to Aaron to separate from the tents of the wicked. You'll see that in verse 21. And now the same message was conveyed to the people. The dominant lesson is that separation is vital unless we want to get ourselves into trouble with God. Separation is needful if we desire our lives to be kept from being destroyed by other people, by places, by religious compromise. And of course, it is not popular to believe in separation. The acceptable practice today is, oh, let's all get together. Let's all mix together and find those things that are common amongst us. Should you dare stand out and be separate, then you will be accused of being more holier than I. But ask yourself, what is better? Is it better to please men or please God? I tell you, the Israelites were to learn that it was the best course of action. You notice verse 27. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents and their wives and their sons and their little children. It was the best course of action. Why? Because by doing so, they escaped the judgment. Dear believer, you pray that God would give you every day the grace to separate from evil. When I speak about separation, I'm not just talking about ecclesiastical. I'm talking about separation in our personal walk with God. Pray that for God's grace, He would give you help every day to separate from a soul, to have that separated walk in our life, to have separation in our, in our uh, continual Walk with the Lord to touch not the unclean thing. And pray that the Lord would ever keep this denomination through to the separation principles of our founding fathers. Because if we don't, 
We just become another evangelical body. That's it. The trumpet must not give an uncertain sound. Many professing believers have forsaken those separation principles and they have mixed up with the world and their walk with God is consequently not where it should be today. The little foxes have got in and spoiled the vines. There's mercy in judgment. Let me show you also the means of judgment. The judgment of God was swift. It was unexpected as far as those who were judged were concerned. And you know there are different parts or means of that judgment as we see in these following verses. The first Maybe the most obvious that stands out had to do with the earth. It's clear that Moses had received this word from the Lord. For he stands before the congregation. He announces before the people that if these men die an ordinary death, if these men have just an ordinary visitation as is common to men, then God has not sent me. Moses had been instructed by God that a supernatural judgment would be witnessed that day upon Korah, Abiram, and Dathan. That new thing would be the earth opening up and swallowing them. Look at the words of verse 30. What if the Lord make a new thing and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up with all that appertain unto them and they go down quick into the pit? Then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. Moses had spoken a word from God, and so it came to pass. And all that pertained to these rebels were to fall in as the earth had opened underneath them. And those fearful words in verse 33 really are an efficient summary of this judgment. It simply says, They went down alive into the pit. They went down alive into the pit. And I trust when you read those words that you understand <coughs> this is not just speaking of a large hole opening up and so they fell to the earth. I suppose today we have pieces on the news that sinkholes and they suddenly appear in a bit of a street and there's a bit of a hole, a brave hole, maybe a car goes into it or something like that in that nature. That's not what is in view here. This was a shaft that opened beneath them that took them all the way to the abode of the dead. The word that is used in that verse 33 is Sheol. It's the Old Testament word to describe hell. The place of no return. The abode of the wicked. You see, men and women, there was no need to dig a grave here or graves. God opened up the earth and sent them straight to the realm of the damned. Truly, as Moses had announced, this wasn't any common death as it was known among men. This was a new thing that God had done against those who had provoked him. And there they remain, I might say, until that day in which that place will be emptied. 
and they'll all be have to stand before the great judge of all the earth on the final day of judgment. And after that, they will be ushered into the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone for all eternity. Either way, the wicked are in the place of torment without the hope of ever escaping. And this physical judgment upon Korah and upon those who were with him is symbolic of the destruction of those who seek to come unto God by any other way other than the only mediator whom he has provided. That mediator is of his only beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that we read there that it caused fear in the camp that they fled? It's a wise man or child or young person who flees from the wrath of God that is to come and flees to Christ. The only refuge. But you know, dear people, the judgment wasn't over. That was just the first part. Because not only was the earth involved, but the next part God used was fire. Look at verse 35. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. God appointed a judgment for those who followed Korah and were in agreement with him. The order was for them to bring their censers with incense in it, to bring it before God, to burn it before God. It would demonstrate who were called of God to be the priests and who were not. God would not accept any irregularities where the offerings before the tabernacle were concerned. He didn't beforehand with Nadab and Abihu. You remember who offered strange fire and they were consumed. And so when the 250 offered their incense, the fire of God was to consume them too. By fire they had sinned and by fire they would suffer. And what follows is a very interesting piece. For God commands that Aaron would go among that charred piece of ground. Among those charred remains. What to do? He was to gather up the censers. The fire offered was strange fire, but the censers were holy. And all 250 of them were to be collected and those censers were to be, as he commanded, beaten flat and they were to be used to cover the main altar of sacrifice. And you might ask, why would that be so? I'll tell you why. Verse 40, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel that no stranger which is not of the seed of Aaron come near to offer incense before the Lord that he be not as Korah and as his company as the Lord said them by the hand of Moses. Those censers were a memorial. Those censers served as a reminder. An important reminder to Israel that God appoints his leaders and priests and no one was to follow in the way of Korah. And so you can imagine every time the people would be bringing their offerings and they brought many of course and they brought them to the altar and as they looked at that altar they would see the metal that covered the altar and that metal once belonged and once formed the censers of the men who were consumed by the fire of God. It was a visible reminder to them to avoid such rebellion and its terrible consequences. Can I not just say this? How many landmarks, how many memorials has God placed in his word for our attention? And to remind us not to go our own way, but to walk in the right 
path, the good path. We ignore those memorials at our peril. Let me just sum it up by 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Speaking of the nation of Israel, verse 11, it says, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they're written for our admonition. And Paul reminds the believers in Corinth, of course, they only had the Old Testament scriptures. He says they're written for our teaching, for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, on account of that, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. They're warning signs. They're memorials that we wouldn't go our own way. The third means of judgment was the plague. The very next day, the congregation of Israel are at it again. They're murmuring. They're murmuring against Moses and Aaron. It seems they never learned their lesson. It just shows how hard their hearts were. The effects of the judgment they had witnessed the day before didn't seem to last any length of time. Maybe the same is known in our day where people can sit in a funeral service or we could say people can sit in a church meeting and they sit under the preaching of the gospel and they sit under the warnings that God has given in His Word but yet when the benediction is said they're going out through the door and they're talking about everything else. What price the cattle were in the mart. What's the politics in the land? They've forgotten so easily what was just preached to them. The Word of God hasn't penetrated their heart or their soul. They're so like the seed that falls on the wayside. We're no different. We might be alarmed when we read verse 41 that on the morrow they're still murmuring. But we're no different men and women. What follows is God's judgment in the form of a plague. Verse 46, the plague has begun. The word used there is also translated strike. Just as the plagues in Egypt were to strike upon the people and the land. But the devastation of this plague is clear for all to see. It was to come upon more than the first two judgments put together. Verse 49. The day that died in the plague were 14,700 Beside them that died about the matter of Korah. That judgment came quickly. And Moses recognized what was happening. And both him and Aaron had fallen. (coughs) (coughs) And again on their faces before the Lord. And he commands Aaron to get up quickly. And to act quickly by taking a censer. And by offering an atonement for the people. In verse 47. Aaron, even though he's an old man, we might say he's in the region of 80 years of age here. And yet he says, it says that he runs. And he runs into the midst and he stands between the dead and the living. Aaron, men and women, is a beautiful picture there again of Christ. Our great high priest. Our only mediator. Who stands in between. 
And through his death on the cross, he stands between the guilty and the judgment of God. He died an atoning death. He bore the punishment and the judgment that we should have borne. He appeased the wrath of God that was her due. Christ endured the fire of God's judgment. He paid the hell that we each deserved. And he stayed the plague for our sin, what it deserved at Calvary. At Calvary. Do you know anything about that? Do you know that by experience in the new birth? There is the means of judgment. But I can't end until I show you the vindication of judgment. Aaron is shown to be the one who was called of God. 250 were, with censers were consumed by the fire of God. Aaron took a censer and offering. Incense unto the Lord was not only spared from the plague, but he also prevented it from spreading any further. We read that in verse 50, and the plague was stayed. But his position is vindicated also if you forget about the chapter division, you read on by the purpose of the rods. The Lord was to confirm the Aaronic priesthood by one more demonstration. He commanded Moses to take a rod for each tribe with the name of that leader of the tribe on that rod. And those rods were to be laid before the Lord in the tabernacle of the congregation. The test was that Whichever the rods blossomed by the morning, that was the one that belonged to the man that God had chosen. It left the decision with the Lord. And the purpose of this would be threefold. Verse 5, chapter 17. shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom. And I will make to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. It would indicate whom God had chosen. The mediator of God's choosing would be obvious. It would take away their murmurings as well. Verse 10. I shall quite take away their murmurings from me that they die not. They should have ceased by this time, but they hadn't in murmuring. But this would bring it to an end. And the third aspect would be that they wouldn't die as you read there in verse 10 as well. You see, if the murmuring stopped, then so would the judgment of God. And just consider those purposes in view, in view of Christ's resurrection, because Christ arose from the dead. It demonstrated that this was God's chosen. This was the mediator. It stops all the challenges to the position of Christ. And because he arose, it meant his people can be saved. For he was raised for our justification. And because he lives, and all in Christ shall love also. What about the proof of the rods here? The verdict will be clear by the morning. There was plenty of evidence that the tribe of Levi had been chosen, and that Aaron would, was to hold the office of the high priest. Verse 8 came to pass that on the morrow Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. Behold the rod of iron, for the house of Levi was budded, and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, 
and yielded almonds. Upon inspection of that rod of Aaron, not only were there their blossoms, but the buds were there which appear first. And then also the almonds were on show. The evidence was overwhelming. We might use those words that we read at the start of Acts concerning Christ's resurrection from the dead. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. Luke tells us, and here was infallible proofs that God had chosen Aaron and not Korah, not the others. You just consider those rods for a moment in closing. What instruction there, there is in them. The rods laid out were dead wood. There wasn't a chance in the world that they would have any sign of life. When one was seen to be fruitful, it was obviously so because God had blessed it. And so it was with Aaron. He was no different from the others. He wasn't any more holy, just the same as God's people. We're all born sinners and shapen in iniquity. But God chose us by his grace. And he's blessed us in all heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not because of anything of you or I, but because of his good pleasure. Note what Aaron commanded, what God commanded concerning Aaron's rod. Verse 10. <coughs> and the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony to be kept for a token against the rebels. It wasn't to be returned to him. Instead, it was to be placed in the ark. That along with the tables of the law and the pot of manna were reminders. But they were reminders not to the people. Because the people never got near the ark of the covenant that was beyond the veil. And it wasn't even a reminder to the high priest because the high priest only went beyond the veil before the ark on the day of atonement. But he never looked into the ark. Here's the thought. They're reminders to God that though we have broken his law, yet at the same time God has appointed a priest through whom sacrifice for sin was to be made and sins forgiven. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That God ever remembers the work that Christ accomplished at Calvary for sinners like you and I. He ever remembers it. There's a lovely picture by the rods here. The rod pictures Christ. I, I, I think you already realize that. The rod of iron was among the others. Those tribes that had rebelled. And wasn't Christ numbered amongst the transgressors? In his death. Aaron's rod was despised by the others. They murmured against him. They sought to take him. Even kill him. Yet he was restored. It was restored to life to the extent that it was taken. And it was preserved in the ark. In the holy place. Now men and women. You just bring those little thoughts together. All those threads. And Christ was despised and rejected. 
He was crucified on that middle cross. But the third day he rose again. And the evidence is clear. That he is the only saviour. And he is the great high priest. And where does he dwell? But in the holy place. In the presence of God the Father. Mark 16 and 19 says this. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. That rod of Aaron is a picture of Christ and his death and his resurrection and his glorification. But you know, with this I close, the rod also pictures conversion. For the rod was dead, yet it was given new life because it had the name of the high priest on it. The rod was transformed to bring forth fruit. And don't we know, of course, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but verse 10 is also important. For we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The soul in Christ, the evidence that they are alive by the fruit of the Spirit. We're no longer dead in trespasses and in sins. But we're alive in Christ. And after that, there's glorification. Placed in the presence of God in that ark. And you see, dear people, that's what God does in conversion. Exactly. Because it's from death unto life unto glory. Is that it? Romans 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. That's your position in Christ this morning if you're saved. Because that's what God in salvation does for us. Brought us from death unto life. And we're assured of glory. As if we're really there. Let me just ask in closing. Is this a picture of you? Are you sure of it? This is a picture of your conversion. What God has done. In your life. If it's not. May it be so. Even this morning. And may you come to know him. Who's the only saviour. May the Lord bless his word, even to our heart this morning, for his own name's sake. We'll sing in closing 266. 266. I will sing of my Redeemer, his wondrous love to me on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. We'll sing verses 1, 3, and 4. 1, 3, and 4, you'll find it in page 283. Let's stand as we sing it.
Lord, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We praise the Lord, even in this passage we see Christ. We see mercy and judgment. And, oh God, we thank Thee for the one who's the only means of approach unto God, the one who's chosen of God to be the only mediator, who paid our judgment in his own body on the tree. We praise the Lord, there's vindication, even seen here. And, oh, Father, how Aaron's rod was chosen among the rest. Lord, what a picture that was given to us. And we can sing of our Redeemer and of what he has purchased for us through the blood of his cross. O oh God, speak on, and the preacher's voice is silent. Lord, we pray as God's people we might meditate upon these things. And I might speak to those not saved, that even this morning they'll come to know Christ as their Savior. Part us now with thy blessing. Bring us back into thy house tonight, and I will. For we ask these mercies in our Savior's precious name. Amen.